0: Well, we're going back to the New Testament uh, this week and uh, into the book of Romans, chapter 11. That's where we're going to pick it up. And uh, while I take a drink of water, be thinking about an answer to this question. Who is your greatest spiritual enemy? And who is your greatest spiritual friend? So be thinking about that. Romans 11, in verse 17, begins, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that. Note then that the kindness, the severity of God, the severity toward those who who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you can continue in his kingdom, and otherwise you too will be cut off. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Unfold our hearts before you, Lord. Speak to us through your word. Lord, there's a need in each of our hearts that this passage addresses and I pray, God, and ask you that you'd be kind. Expose that need. Give us the strength to to overcome and to resist and to repent of, that, of, the, of the need that's in our heart. Not only for our good, but for your glory's sake. In Christ's name, amen. So remember our opening question was this. Uh, who is the greatest spiritual enemy? Your greatest spiritual enemy. And who is your greatest spiritual friend? Now, as you think through that question... We're probably all tempted to answer, well, it's simple. Satan is my greatest spiritual enemy. And I believe that Christ is my greatest spiritual friend. And ultimately, you'd be right. I mean, that's the ultimate answer to that question. You know, John Stott thought through that question. And he came up with a little bit different answer. And he wrote this. He's a theologian. He says, it's kind of a provocative answer. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. His succinct statement about pride and humility goes straight to the heart of the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to see that pride is our greatest enemy and that our greatest friend is that of the heart of humility. And we're going to see what the the Bible teaches us about the the root sin. Much to say about the root sin of humility. Pride and the sorrows that come from it. Now, in the eleventh chapter of the book of Romans, we've been answering a question. Paul has addressed the question of what about Israel? What about the Jews? Uh, are there any hope for the Jews? And uh, we saw that there was a judicial act of God whereby the Jews have been rejected by God, and we saw how the how the Gentiles have been elected by His grace. God cut off ethnic Israel from, 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 from by way of election, but also by way of salvation. He, gave, he granted them a judicial blindness that, as we saw in Romans 11, so they cannot see and they cannot hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the last time we looked at this question, it's been about, about a month ago. Why? Why cut off God's people? Why cut off the Jews? We must be careful whenever we ask God the question, why? Remember, He is God and we're His creation. But, uh, you know, why is He saving cowboys today? Why is He saving farmers today? Why is He saving police in Cody, Wyoming, and children, and moms, and dads? We don't know. Ephesians tells us it's because of His good pleasure. He doesn't give us all the wheres and the wheres, the wheres and the where and the where to, but just because of his good pleasure, for his own glory's sake, he does those things. But last time, God did offer an answer to the question, why? And the reason why is so that many Gentiles would be converted, number one. That's, that's obvious. But there was also a greater reason, that is this, that by saving and bringing in and electing the Gentiles... What he was doing is provoking the Jews to come to faith. Provoking them to come to faith. And, uh, and exposing their lack of belief, too, as well. Today, we're going to fast forward 2,000 years after, more than 2,000 years after this passage was written. And God is still doing the same thing today as he was 2,000 years ago. God is still saving Gentiles. Well, this room more than likely is full of men and women and boys and girls who have been saved by the grace of God. Most, if not all of you, are Gentiles. And that's, that, that's his purpose to do that. Isn't that wonderful? We're, we receive the blessing. But on the other side, we see that every time one is saved, each, each time each one of you came to faith in Christ, you are also fulfilling another purpose, to bring jealousy to the Jews, and that's still going on today. Now, you think that the Gentiles would be excited about that. If you were in Rome and the gospel's going out for the first time and you're a Gentile and you knew that the Jews got all the blessings and here you were a Gentile and now grace has come to you and now you have faith and you're trusting in the Messiah, you might think at this point, well, what a blessing that is. What a wonderful blessing God has brought to me. But what happened is this, the Gentiles rather than saying, what a blessing, they started to look down their nose at the Jews and did so with a proud heart. And now we've got it. We've got the kingdom. We've got forgiveness. We've got God. We have the Messiah. We have the Bible and not the Jews. Jews. And so what it did is it led to a heart of pride, a spiritual pride, in, 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 the Jew, in, in the Gentiles at Rome. And so what Paul is doing here in this verse is he's recognizing there's a heart condition in, in, in the people that he's writing to in Rome. And so Paul is stopping. He's putting the skids on. He put the brakes on at this point in the letter. And he's going to address just that problem spiritual pride of the of the Roman Gentiles their their despising of the Jews and, and their religious relationship to Christ rather than being humbled, rather than being on their knees rather than thanking God for the grace that was extended to them they were proud they boasted we have all the blessings and they'd pound on their chest in, in pride almost in in an anti-Semitic way because they knew God now. And so Paul is going to address that spiritual problem in the church of Rome in the passage that we have before us today. And by the way, spiritual pride isn't something that was just back 2,000 plus years ago. Spiritual pride has been going on ever since the beginning all the way right up to us today. Right up to 2023, Cody, Wyoming, Redeeming Grace Church. All of us who are sitting here today in in, in the chairs and, and those who are up front preaching and leading worship. Spiritual pride has been the danger of the church. Now you would expect spiritual pride to take place maybe outside the church. I mean, you would expect, of course, in the world there's going to be pride. It's going to be pride in the, in the life of the business world and sports world and entertainment world. And maybe my relationship to others out in the world. And maybe you'd be surprised to discover that perhaps one of the greatest areas of pride is right in the church of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest areas of pride is what we call spiritual pride. I mean, the very doctrine of of, of grace and the very doctrine that God gives us everything, it's surprising that in the midst of that salvation and the understanding of that doctrine that we'd be proud. But we are. And we're going to look at the the humbling lesson that Paul brings in today's passage. So he's going to interrupt his his, uh, teaching here in Romans 11. He's going to speak to Rome. It's going to speak to the pride of the church there. And because it was recorded and put in Scripture and given to us, it's going to speak to us today at Redeeming Grace Church, the very spiritual pride that might exist here in the body of Christ locally in Cody. Now, you farmers here, you ranchers here are going to be kind of maybe a little bit excited because uh, Paul's going to teach us from, from, the, from the language of horticulture. And what does that mean? Well, then that's that practice of working with plants to make them more productive. And here he's going to take take us to the classroom of an olive orchard and he says, look there, I'm going to teach you a lesson from this olive orchard and teach us a root lesson from the roots about humility. Last time we closed uh, verse 16. And this by way of reminder 16 is kind of a transitional verse it goes from the teaching that we've been looking at in chapter 11 there's a transition that we're going to read in just a second and it leads right into the the correction that comes starting in verse 17 remember in 16 he says if the dough offered at first f- fruits of holy so is the whole lump and if the root is holy so are the branches so there there's the transition in other words, if you come and you're offering and your first fruits are holy, then that represents all your crops are holy and, and, and being offered up to God. And in the same way, if the root is holy, and now he's going to the, to the tree, so are the branches. And that's going to be where we're going today. Uh, he's addressing the future of Israel. If the first fruits are holy, the cake offering is holy, representing the whole crop, It will follow the, the crop will be holy. And then in other words, won't all the branches be holy? Well and now Paul transitions to a specific root, a specific branch, and teaches about pride. So as we look at this passage, think about roots. Think about an olive tree, whether it's root, it's it's tap root. Think about the branches that go off. Think about the horticulture of grafting in and lopping off. Uh, A farmer sees a certain kind of tree that's not bearing a lot of fruit. He might graft into the rootstock a branch to make a a good tree and to produce good fruit. And uh, I see the Currys are with us today. Now they're former Californians, and I'm glad to see you're now back in Wyoming again. But you know, if you drive the Central Valley, and Kyle knows this as well, you drive the Central Valley up and down uh, California, you're going to see a lot, a lot of uh, walnut trees. Walnut orchards line Interstate Five and and ninety nine. And if you've ever looked at these, the, these. Uh, walnut orchards, if you look carefully at one tree, you'll note at the bottom they're fatter than than the top. At the very bottom they're thicker and darker, and then off comes the trunk out of that. And I always remember as a kid, why is that? Why are they kind of two-tiered, you know, and they have the, the darker part at the bottom, the, the the thicker part at the bottom, and then of course they see the the trunk coming out of that. Well, it's because of this whole issue of horticulture and the whole issue of grafting in and producing a better fruit. Uh, the black walnut is indigenous to California, and they have thick shells and produce a small nut inside the shell. If you've ever had a black walnut, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's hard to crack into it, and you work at it, and you crack it, and you break it open, and you get this little, little, little piece of walnut inside. The English walnut isn't that way. The English walnut, those indigenous of Persia to modern day Turkey, and it has a thinner shell and a lot of meat, and a lot of a lot of meat on the inside. And so I don't know who the first farmer was that came along and says, Well, hey, wait a minute. You know, the uh the black walnuts, indigenous California, grows well here. Why don't we just take a branch off of, the, uh, uh, off of the English walnut and we'll just graft it into the black walnut and we'll have the best of both worlds. And that's pretty much the crop today, I mean, in, in, in California of, for walnuts. Uh, they graft in the black walnut root, rootstock with the uh, English walnut producing a more edible fruit, a more marketable fruit, uh, nut, and also more disease resistant because the the tap root is, is California, is a California root. In other words, a strong tr- tr- tree produces good fruit. And they did that by way of grafting. Uh, so let's take a closer look at what Paul's saying in verse seventeen in that light. Now, if you read verse 17, it almost seems to be saying the opposite of what I just said is normal, good horticulture. You know, if the branches were broken off, uh, wild olive shoots were grafted in, and uh, the root, of the, uh, and now they share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, produce, producing fruit. The common practice is to graft in the graft in branches that grow good fruit. Even more than the trunk, you want the branches to be branches that will produce good fruit, and you graft that into into the root, and you will get good fruit. But if you look carefully at Paul's illustration, he's reversed the practice. It's not the normal horticulture practice where you take uh, a good branch and, and put it in, in, into, a, uh, in, into a root. Paul's illustration is reversing proper horticulture practice. And instead, what we have here is that uh, he's grafting in the English walnut tree to produce uh, good nuts, that's what we do in California. In this case, he's the root that produces the good fruit and the and, and the branches are the wild, just the opposite. The branches are the wild but the but the root is the good is the good fruit producing root. Now I know you might not some of you might not care about this, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. Liberals love verses like this in the Bible. <laughs> Whenever Paul goes off and he, he may, starts quoting something that is out of practice with the norm, they take their finger out and they point and say, see, the Bible isn't the word of God. Anybody knows that's not the how you do it. You, know, you, you don't take the, uh, the, 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 bad, the, the bad branch and put it into the good, the good root. You do it the other way. That's the proper horticulture. I mean, if Paul doesn't know horticulture, how's he going to know salvation? How's he going to teach about God if he doesn't understand the very basic things of horticulture? And uh, he has it all backwards. It's interesting, and he does, according to modern practices. I have an old commentary on my shelf. Uh, It was first published back in 1905. It's by W.M. Ramsey, who was a British guy who went down to the um, to Israel back in the early 1900s, and just started looking and learning and discovering. And uh, one of the things he looked at was a horticulture process down there in light of Romans 11. And he was surprised to find out at that time they were doing exactly what Paul was saying, not the way we do it today, but that's how they were doing it down in Israel. Back in the early 1900s, and and the reason wasn't to produce a better fruit as much as what it was was to enliven the tree itself. Trees that gone have gone dormant, you could put in a you could put in a, a, a branch and, and and reinvigorate the the very root tap itself now i don't think paul is all about horticulture here i don't think his purpose is to teach us about horticulture here Uh, what i do think is this he's to teach us a spiritual lesson so that we'll understand it and it's like he's saying here is my purpose is not to teach you about farming my purpose here is to teach you a spiritual truth and i'm using farming and what you know about farming as an illustration to that truth so what's the lesson we learn from from grafting in and from horticulture of, of, of the grape of the grape or of, of, of the tree? Well, first of all, we have to know what the parts of the tree are. And As you look at verse 17, he mentioned several parts of the tree. Notice, first of all, there's a root of the olive tree. That's the first part. What's that? Then second, we see there's branches that are being whacked off, and there's other branches that are being grafted in. What are they, and what's the lesson that we learn from that picture? Well, the root of the olive tree, you know, there's the covenant blessings that go came through the Old Testament patriarchs. Um, John Murray says that the, the very blessings from the olive tree, that the root of the olive tree, are, are rooted in, in, in the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Men like Moses and David and Abraham, the Jews were were, were attached to them. Their teaching and, and all that came through them. Of course, we know the ultimate source of life would be Christ Himself. You know, Abraham, even back in the day, believed that God, and it was counted to him as righteous. All in Christ are sons of Abraham. So that's the the root. Now the branches, and notice there's two branches mentioned there in verse 17. First of all, the branches being whacked off from the olive tree. Uh, those are the, the natural branches of the tree. See, the branches that are whacked off, these are the natural branches of the tree. This is ethnic uh, Israel. These are the ethnic Jews. And God is rejecting them, cutting them off, taking them from the source of life, and, and leaving them off to die. They've been cut off from the kingdom. They've been cut off from being called a spiritual Jew. And they've been cut off as the source of blessing. Notice thirdly, there's another group of branches mentioned in verse 17. And those are the branches that are being grafted into the tree itself, the olive tree. And they came from a wild tree, an unfruitful tree. And this would be all the Gentiles. And God is saving them. And God's cut off the Jews. He, now He's grafted in the, the wild tree, the unfruitful tree, in the very source of life. And he, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, now they share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That's us. Uh, what a blessing we have. Now this picture teaches us a spiritual lesson about pride. You might be surprised that you look at roots and branches and, and, and learn about pride. But look at verse 19. Then you, shall, and then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Now I don't know if you can hear, he's, he's parroting the, the, the Romans. Can you hear pride in their voice? Then, then you will say, well the branches were broken off so that I, heavy emphasis on the I, might be grafted in. Oh, those Jews, they, they were cut off. Ah, but we Gentiles, we're now God's favorite. We're now superior. We have life. We have the kingdom. We have the Messiah. One of the dangers of the Christian life, and this is a big one, is spiritual pride. We're tempted in every area of our life, especially in our spiritual life, we're all susceptible. every one of us is susceptible to spiritual pride. Every one of us are vulnerable. We, like the Romans, need to be warned regularly of spiritual pride. I mean here's a few examples. There's denominational pride. Well, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Baptist, OK? Well, I'm a Methodist. You can have pride all over every denomination. Well, no, no, I'm a reformed Baptist. I have my doctrine right, and they don't. Or I'm Pentecostal. I'm four square. I've got the whole gospel. I'm Arminian. I believe man does have a a choice in, in the matter. Or I'm Reformed. No, God elects those whom He's going to save. And we get in our spiritual camps. We, we, we get inside of our, of our denominations, and it's easy for pride to creep in to, to, our, to our identity. As, as what we believe and what we practice. You know, there's spiritual pride that creeps in in the area of spiritual achievement. I mean, how many stand up and they preach from pulpits and they're proud of the fact that they've got the DR after their name? And they want you to m- make sure everyone knows that they are Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones. There's a lot of pride behind the pulpit. This is one of the greatest sources of pride right here. Preachers who preach from a prideful heart. Your position in the church could be a place of pride, a heart of pride. Pride. Playing a musical instrument can lead to pride. Being a deacon, being an elder can cause you to be puffed up with pride. You can be proud of your church. Well, I go to Redeeming Grace Church. Uh, I'm proud of my church in a sinful way. You can be proud of the building. You can be proud of the, the finances. You can be proud of the possessions, of the programs, all the technology we have. Whatever it is, you know, people are very proud of their 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 church. You can be proud of your spiritual abilities, your spiritual gifts, the way you serve God. You might be proud because you speak in tongues. You might be proud because I don't speak in tongues. You can be proud uh, because you can teach, even though there's greater condemnation. Right? <laughs> we, greater condemnation comes with that gift. You might be proud in your attendance at church, and then there's the personal spiritual pride. You know doctrines that you know that you believe in, that you become proud of those doctrines. Uh, or you're proud at the number of times you've read through the Bible. Proud in your higher knowledge of certain doctrinal truths. Proud in your understanding of historical nuances that others don't yet understand. You can be proud of the doctrines of grace. You can be proud of the sovereignty of God, and you believe in that. It's good to believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's a sin to be proud that you believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and flaunt that to those who might have a different perspective. You can be proud in your personal holiness. You know, there are churches around that set up, set up 10 or 15 rules of do's and don'ts. And I noticed that the churches that do that usually set up rules of do's and don'ts for holiness that are pretty easy to, to do on your own without grace. <laughs> so if you dress a certain way, you have a certain Bible, you do this, you don't do that. You got these ten rules of conduct, you're a holy person. And so you, you might have a whole congregation thinking how proud I am because I keep the ten rules of my church. Look at me, I'm not like the other guy. You know, you can even be proud that you're not proud. So for those of you who are sitting there right now thinking, well, you're not talking about me. Do you realize you can be proud by not being proud? I'm proud that I'm not proud. I don't don't know how that works, but uh, I thank God that I'm not like those other people. They're proud. I'm smug in my lack of pride. Now what I'm going to show you in, in Scripture this morning is this, that pride robs you robs the church of Jesus Christ of blessing. Pride robs the church of joy. Pride pride robs the church of power to accomplish the very means or the very purpose that God has given us. I'm going to come back to it in a minute, but let me just read it right now. In James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud. I want you to be thinking about this verse. But he gives grace to the humble. Now in the passage we're looking at this morning in Romans 11, Paul's going to quickly give us three reasons why being a Christian is completely inconsistent with spiritual pride. And the first one is very obvious. We know this one. You are saved by grace alone. There's the first reason why spiritual pride should be out the window in in the church. Verse 18, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, there's nothing in you as a branch that's good, that has life, that has purpose, that has direction. Everything comes up out of it. This is right out of John 15. Everything comes right out of the root. It's given to you by God by grace. You're only a branch. You do not bring life to yourself as a branch. It comes from the root. If God has graced the Gentiles to salvation, it's only because of grace. It's nothing that they did of themselves. There's no room for pride. It's like Paul saying, remember who you are. Remember how you were saved. You're a living olive branch grafted into the good tree of God's blessing. And it's all been given to you as a gift. Every blessing we have as Christians is a gift of God. There's no room for pride anywhere. So let me ask you are you forgiven today by the grace grace of God? Are you proud of that? Is there any room for being proud that you're forgiven? No, it was a gift. God gave it to you as a gift. You have faith. Is there room for pride in faith? No, it's a gift as well. You know, you've come to the point theologically where you can understand the great, deep theological truths of the faith that most people don't understand. Where, Where does that knowledge come from? Assuming you have the right understanding of theology. It comes from God. God opens our understanding. He gives us meaning. He, it, even our understanding of doctrine is, is a gift from God. You see, grace removes all boasting. And since everything in the Christian life is of grace, there's no room for any boasting in the Christian life, period. Uh, when Mary and I were in Milan, Italy, it quite a few years ago, we stayed with a pastor there and... Uh, So this is a beautiful home that he lived in. I mean, it had like tile floors and wood floors and wood banisters, and it was just a beautiful home. It was so beautiful that he felt that he had to kind of explain the home to us and how he got it so that we didn't, you know, have it. We are probably wondering, wow, where did this come from? And it was very interesting because he said there is a tradition in Italy that the firstborn, if the parents can afford it, Have a house given to him by the parents. And this this house was a gift from his parents. And he says, You know, we didn't choose the neighborhood, we didn't choose the contractor, we didn't put a dime in it ourselves. You know, there's no work or anything on our part. We can't boast. But it was given to us by my parents. Actually, it was given to them by God through his parents. There was no room for boasting in that house, it was a free gift. Secondly, another reason why we see that pride is inconsistent with the Christian life is because you are justified by faith. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Gentiles, Romans, you have no room for pride because of your standing before God is based on faith, by grace, through faith, not of deeds. There's no room for superiority. Its salvation is by faith. Romans 3:27 says, "Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We have no room to boast. Now, grace is our act is God's act right is grace God's act yes. yes and so see if you say yes to this faith is our act right No. well yeah but I have to believe or I'm gonna be lost the Jews didn't believe so they were cut off this, this was their work right So now, the heads are going this way. are going this way. You know, it's a good question. Um, you might be tempted to think, well, you know, if faith is a work of man, then it seems like there'd be some room for, for pride there, wouldn't there? You might be tempted to ask, well, can, the, can, the, by, can faith bring pride? Produce pride? I mean, if, if faith is totally a work of man, you could put your thumbs in your, on your breast and you could puff your, your chest up and you could say, Boy, when that message came to me about Jesus Christ, I realized that is a good deal. And I jumped on board and I believed in Jesus. And I don't know about the rest of the people out there, but obviously they're not as smart as I am because I believed. I trusted Christ. And there'd be room for both. That's what Ephesians 2.8 tells us. But Ephesians 2.8 also tells us what? That even our faith, even though we exercise the faith, that faith to believe is a what? Gift of God even that is a gift. So we have no room to boast. So the proper response of the Romans is this. Do not become proud, but fear, it says there in in that verse. Fear. Fear in a sense of awe. God saved you by His grace and through faith. Praise Him. Get on your knees. Thank Him. But I believe the fear response here should also be thought of as a fear in the sense of trembling. If it's all of grace, tremble. If you're trusting in Christ, tremble. Do not be proud, tremble. Because the Jews were cut off, and you know what? If you remain in unbelief, you too can be cut off. The Gentiles can be cut off. Calvin said this, We should never think of the rejection of the Jews without being struck with dread and fear. If it happened to them, maybe it could happen to me. And thirdly, there's a third reason why um, pride is inconsistent with the Christian faith is unchecked pride might result in you being, as we just mentioned, cut off from God. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. There, there it is. So for, for say, if God cut off the natural branches, don't get too smug. Be, be humble because God can cut you off as well neither will he spare you. If he discarded the Jews, he could discard the Gentiles. If he discarded them for their lack of faith, he could discard you for your lack of faith. Are you saying, Don, that if I have spiritual pride, I'm going to be cut off and I'm going to lose my salvation? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying this. If you continue in unrepentant pride throughout what you're professing Christian life. You too might be one of the ones that were removed or, or cut off. You think he'll spare you? The answer obviously is he won't. And if you're thinking ahead and maybe kind of anticipating what might come next, maybe you thought, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible teach the perseverance of the saints? Doesn't the Bible teach once saved, always saved? Uh, uh, Doesn't the Bible teach that uh, what God has begun in the here and now, He's going to carry through all the way through eternity? How do we reconcile that with verse 21 that says, neither will He spare you? And the Bible teaches Yes, we will be saved to the uttermost. John 10 is a great verse for persevering faith that God gives us. 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you is going to do what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. None will be lost. Romans eight, remember we just went through Romans eight thirty a few months ago. Those who got into the first link of the chain of salvation, those who were predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, all those will be glorified. None will be lost. So we need to be careful. Paul is not saying if you have spiritual pride, you will lose your salvation. But what he is saying, if you remain in spiritual pride and never repent, and remain in spiritual pride and never repent, your heart is hardened and will not repent, you might be lopped off just like the Jews were lopped off. There are those who come to church who continue in spiritual pride week after week after week. He's speaking to you. He's warning that you too could be cut off. You realize on Judgment Day that all of a sudden you had you embraced an outward religion, and that's all you had was an outward religion, and no inward relationship to God through grace through faith. Hodge brings this up in his commentary, remembering that the Jews who were lopped off, the Jews given blindness, they could not see, they could not hear. So many in the day, in, in the day of judgment. Uh, are, are lost, and then because of their unfaith, all the Jews were cut off, and that means their descendants. The sin of unbelief of the Jews caused the ethnic Jews to be cut off, and today there's very few Jews that are being saved, if you know, at all. And you can see that the sin of the Jews the day of Paul are rippling have a rippling effect down today in the salvation, the lack of salvation of Jews today. And, and, and noticing that, Hodge says this, if our sins lack of repentance would cause us to be broken off, could it be the very branch that might affect our children and our children's children? In other words, your spiritual pride that remains in unbelief Here you are finding yourself outside the very pale of true salvation. Could that have an effect? Not on you, only you and, and, and your salvation, but your children and your children's children. Now, what I want to look at here is the remedy that he brings us for spiritual pride. And it's in verse 22. Note that the kindness and the severity of God. There's the remedy. Beware, he's saying. Note the kindness and the severity of God. The severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. The remedy is to look to God. And as you look to God and you look at who He is and how He responds to those whom He created, you're going to receive a lesson that will help you and be a remedy for your own spiritual pride. How does God teach those who are kind? He's kind. How does God teach those who are proud and unrepentant? Severely, with severity. God treats those who are unrepentant. In their pride severely and 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 all you have to do is open up your Bible and read your Bible and the lessons of kindness and severity will be repeated over and over and over again start in the Old Testament read all the way through the New Testament even through the book of Revelation and what will you find in the Word of God you'll see the kindness of God on, on the people on his people the severity of God on those who are unrepentant in their pride Think of the flood. I mean, there's just one little story. Think of the flood. And you have the whole world, you know, turning their back on God. The whole world is given over to wickedness. They would not repent. God was kind enough and long-suffering with them to, to, to not only take Noah to be building a boat, but also to go out and preach righteousness. And they would not repent. And he dealt with them out. Severely, I mean, the water's coming in. You're climbing the trees. You're trying to keep it from drowning. You can't climb any higher. And now it's up to your neck, and you drowned. That's severe judgment. But God produces is kind to those who are acting kindly. And that even that is by His grace. There were those who got on board. <laughs> there's, there's Noah and his family. And why did they get on board? Because they found... Grace in the eyes of God. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the warning is, otherwise you will be cut off. I think there's a little application here for you and for me of the importance of being in the Word of God. How are you going to know the nature of God if you don't go to His Word? How are you going to know that God is a severe God unless you're in His Word? How are you going to know that God is a kind God unless He's in His Word? word? If you don't know who God is, you won't know how to respond, and you won't respond the right way as it relates to pride. Uh, If you have a false, idolatrous view, a kind of a you know, uh, uh, kind of a glimmer of God is this, uh, you know, some figment of your imagination that's much kinder than than He really is to those who sin. You're going to be tempted to go off and commit more sin. If you water down who God is and He's not that bad, no, He is good. But you're going to see that you're you're, you're not going to respond in a way that would lead you to Repentance. So we see a glimmer of hope in verse 21. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Now that's an interesting verse. Look at verse 23. Even they, that's the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, what does that mean? They're going to stop unbelieving. They're going to come with faith. Should they come to faith, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in. Having lopped them off, He could graft them back in again. Look at 24. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, a good farmer would never do this. I mean, obviously, if you have bad branches not producing fruit, you 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 cut them off, you throw them off in the heap over there. You don't say, "Hey, I got an idea. Well, maybe I'll take those bad branches. And I'm going to graft them back into the tree." That sounds like a good idea. No, they would never do that. A good farmer would never do this. God does say, though, but should if the Jews did repent and if they did believe, they could be grafted back in. And that raises the question. I'm going to hold this over your head till next month when we come back to this, this chapter again. What about the Jews then? We see a little glimmering here, a glimmering of hope and life that maybe all ethnic Jews will one day repent and come back in and be grafted back in again. Is that what Paul's saying here? Yes, God can graft back the very branch he's cut off. He's capable of doing that. Will all of ethnic Israel be saved in the future? What future has ethnic Israel? You know, right now, right this minute, there's missiles flying in the air. There's people that are dying on the battlefield of a great war that's taking place in the Mideast. And it's all over the land called what? Israel. And the Jews were gathered back into the land. And, and so the question is, how does this relate, for example, to, to the Jews? Does this mean they're going to win the war? Does this mean they're going to wave the victory flag and, and that one day soon that perhaps Christ will return and, and all the Jews will be saved and, and will be in Israel and there'll be a kingdom set up. I mean, Is that what it's being said here? There's several views on this, and I didn't want to just tack it in at the end of the sermon. So what I want to do is is go over those in greater detail next time, as we answer the question, "What about the Jews?" There's several views on this important question, and we'll we'll, we'll hopefully receive a, a good answer next next gathering. Now let's just uh, bring us bring this to a conclusion. Let's bring this. To, theology plane down and land it and see what, what, what application we have for ourselves you know quite a few years ago I preached at a pastor's conference and uh, This pastor's conference had had a theme of pride in the ministry uh, The main the main verse that, that one of the pastors preached was from James chapter 4 verse 6 Says this. We looked at it already. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. There are about 150 pastors at this conference. I mean, just ordinary Baptist pastors that were in attendance. But there was one other person that was in attendance, and that was the Holy Spirit. Who took the words of the preacher on James 4 6 and just drove it into the hearts of every pastor that was there? I mean, the last thing as a pastor you want to hear is that you're dedicating your life to ministry, you're preaching the Word of God, that God's people's lives might be changed, that souls might be saved, that, that the kingdom of God might advance. And because of your pride behind this pulpit, God is resisting you, resisting everything you're doing to accomplish what He wants you to do. I mean, that's riveting. Think of it as a parent. You're proud parents and spiritually proud. and everything you want to do in the life of your child for their good, he's resisting or a Sunday school teacher, or a Bible study leader, or any other ministry you have in the church, or take the collective ministry of Redeeming Grace Church. Everything we are seeking to accomplish for His glory, He's resisting. All of our work's in vain. I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear. And yet pride fills the pulpits. Pride fills the pews. On that day, the Holy Spirit brought conviction to 150 pastors that began to openly and loudly weep. You think laughing's contagious? Weeping's contagious. Because all of a sudden I was choked up and I found myself weeping with the other pastors as God was beginning to reveal to all of us levels of spiritual pride, they're in the the hearts of pastors. I mean, it got to the point where the the crying and, 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 and the wailing was so loud at that meeting that men got out of their seats and got flat on their face before God. They planted their face down and cried out to God for mercy and asked for forgiveness for the sin that they had behind the pulpit and leading and shepherding the flock of God. The the need is no less today with all of us than it is for those 150 pastors. Oh, that God would be so kind to us today for His Spirit to just go into each one of your hearts, each one of my, into my heart, and expose my pride and how self-sufficient I am and the lack of humility that's in my life. The tears might flow from my eyes. That someone might fall on their face right down in the aisle and ask for God and cry out for forgiveness. I mean, I don't want to be more bold than God. I don't know your heart. I know my heart after going more than I did before as I've gone through this passage all week. But would I be so bold to suggest that every one of us in this room, without exception, are suffering from various degrees of spiritual pride. I mean we have to ask questions like has God opposed this ministry? Has God opposed the ministry of Redeeming Grace Church? Has God put his hands up and restrained the advancement of the work here at Redeeming Grace Church because of the pride that's in our hearts? I don't know the answer to that question. but I know there's pride behind this pulpit. I, I see it when it you know, raises up its head in my heart, in my life. You might not hear it in a sermon, but it could, it could be on a Twitter feed. It could be on a Twitter, you know. It comes out there, That's where the real heart, by the way, seems to take over, is is on social media. You kind of see into the heart of a person, not necessarily what they'll say in church. Jonathan Edwards said, The first and the worst cause of errors that prevail in our day is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. And What a dilemma to be zealous for God to work and yet inhibiting His work because it's marked by pride. Could it be that as a church we've not advanced in holiness because of spiritual pride? Here's one of the common charges you're going to hear levied against Reformed Baptist churches. Oh, they're a proud bunch. Boy, they're so proud of their doctrines. They put other people down. I mean, you hear this a lot. And I think probably because there's some truth behind it. So proud of their doctrines of grace. They think they have a loftier knowledge of God. They know about, you know, election, all these high spiritual truths. They look down their nose at those of us who don't believe those things. C.S. Lewis profoundly warned that of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. You know, sometimes arrogant in the way that we do advance our theology. We've got to be careful of that. We can love our doctrine so much we become arrogant. We become proud. Let me put it this way. If you know any doctrinal truth at all, no matter how deep or how shallow. The only reason you know that doctrine or that truth is because God has graciously opened your understanding to not only understand it, but to believe it. You have no room to say, oh, wow, I just want this, and I studied the classics, and I know that, and this, and I really know, and you're not, and and you become very self-righteous. And God says, No. If you know anything that's true, I mean, first of all, you've got to ask whether even your doctrine is true before you get proud about it. But if your doctrine is true, it came from God as a gift. Because God, in His kindness, has opened our understanding to the deeper truths about Himself. That's humbling. Pride and worship. Does that happen? Oh, songs that are sung, is there any pride there? Musicians and instruments that are played, is there any pride there? Oh, no, we hold the regular principle of worship. Oh, okay, can you be proud that you hold of the regular principle of worship? Proud of convictions? Oh, I'm proud, I'm pro-life, they're not, they're pro-death. Look at me. Pride in the gifts that you have, the spiritual gifts? Look at me, I speak in tongues. Look at me, I don't speak in tongues. Pride in the pews? Well, you know, my faith is as strong as those old Puritans. I can actually sit and listen to Don preach for an hour. No one else can do that, but I can. Pride in the way you listen to a sermon? I don't know what areas you see the Spirit of God pointing his finger at spiritual pride in your life, but I would call you to listen, to repent. So, look at the goodness of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God. Look how he disciplines the wicked. Be fear, have to be fearful. Remember, when we walk through those doors, we walk through those doors with hearts that are humble in worship. There's no room for pride here as we come before the, the Creator of the universe. And this pride is going to be a battle that you're going to deal with the rest of your life. The day that you die, you're gonna be fighting pride. You can mortify it, you know, you can cut it off, and but you're gonna be gonna be struggling with it. And it seems like the more you fight it, the more it comes up even stronger sometimes, pride. You know, perhaps you heard the story of Harry Einstein. He was the pastor of one of the of the Moody Church in Chicago. And he, he one day realized, you know, I'm struggling with pride as a pastor, and I'm not as humble as I should be. So he said, you know, I'm going to go to a friend and ask for help and see what his counsel is. Here was his suggestion. Make a sandwich board with a plan of salvation and scripture reference on it. Go to downtown Chicago in the business district and walk up and down the sidewalks all day from 8 to 5 with a sandwich board sign on your chest. He said, okay. So we made a sandwich board and he put the plan of salvation. He had all the verses on it and went down the business district of Chicago. Did it from 8 to 5. Became a fool for Christ. And then he got home and he's trying to take the sandwich board off and he's done for the day. And and he said, I caught myself. After doing that, he said, I caught myself thinking, there isn't, another person in Chicago that would have done what I did today. Do you see how pride is? I mean, you think you're, you're defeating it and it raises its head right back up again. So let's may God bring the humbling heart of repentance to all of us uh, in this area. We're soon going to be coming to the Lord's table. And this is the level playing field that there's no room. When you, when you realize what's in the cup and when the juice and, and, the, and the wine that we drink, when, when you come before the elements, if you come with understanding, you have to leave with a heart of humility and you should come with a heart of humility. John Newton, let me close with a quote from him. He He was right when he said, if I ever reach heaven... I'm going to expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. That would be a wonder, wouldn't it? Second, to miss some that I thought would be there. And the third is the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. That's the heart of humility. By the grace of God alone. And Father, we do close... Lord, I pray that whatever words came from the mouth of this preacher, Lord, He would have straightened them out to bring understanding to the hearer. But I pray, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit to take those words right out of Romans 11 and break us of our self sufficiency, break us of our spiritual pride.